from the Zimmerman Symphony Center in Canton, Ohio. This is Orchestrating Change. I'm Matthew Jenkins Yarashevitz, Associate Conductor of the Canton Symphony Orchestra. And I'm Rachel Hegemeyer, Manager of Education and Community Engagement. We are so glad you could join us. This podcast navigates issues that exist in the field of classical music and the world at large. We invite you to listen with open ears as our guests share their experiences and as we discuss these often avoided topics. Today, we are honored to welcome world-renowned violinist Rachel Barton Pine to the podcast, a celebrated interpreter of a wide range of standard and contemporary repertoire. She has performed with many of the world's leading orchestras, including the Vienna Philharmonic, Philadelphia Orchestra, and Chicago Symphony, with which she made her debut when she was only 10 years old. She is also a prolific recording artist whose discography includes the Brahms Violin Concerto with the Chicago Symphony and all five of Mozart's Violin Concertos with Sir Neville Mariner and the Academy of St. Martin in the Fields. Outside of performing, she has published her own editions of numerous violin masterworks. She also works as a philanthropist with her own foundation, who focuses on increasing the awareness and accessibility of music by black composers. Rachel Barton Pine, it is such a joy to have you with us today. Welcome to Orchestrating Change. Thanks for having me on. It's so wonderful to have you here with us, and you're going to be here in Canton, which is even more exciting for us. But first, uh, can you just introduce yourself? Uh, tell us just a little bit more about you, even though that was an amazing introduction and how you got involved in music as a young person. So when I was three years old, I saw some middle school age girls playing violin in my church. And I just loved the sound of the instrument. I was immediately intrigued and I begged my parents for lessons. Neither of them had grown up playing any instrument, but they finally gave in and I started lessons that summer and just completely fell in love with it and became basically obsessed by the time I was in kindergarten. I started signing my school papers, Rachel, violinist. <laughs> like that really became my identity that I wasn't someone who played the violin, but I, I was a violinist. Oh, wow. And I, of course, had no idea about what that meant in terms of a career or, you know, profession or anything like that. But I just... I felt like this is what I was meant to do with my life, share music with people and explore music. And my parents, you know, figured out that one could indeed earn a living at it. So um, they were supportive of my of my dreams. And um, yeah, I've been doing it ever since. So when I was eight, actually, it was a big life-changing moment when my school principal suggested that I discontinue attending school. And it sounds like I got expelled, but I promise that wasn't the case. Um, I actually started homeschooling back when that was not a common thing to do. I don't think my parents had even heard of it, but luckily they were willing to do that for me. And it really ironically made my childhood more normal because I could go to school instead, instead of going to school all day and then cramming in my practicing before driving to rehearsals in the evenings and eating my dinner in the car and doing my homework in the car and never getting a chance to hang out with other kids. 
I could do the academic work in just a few hours a day, spread out over seven days a week, 12 months a year. And therefore I could do my practicing during school hours and have my afternoons free to play with kids. So that was um, a real um, life-saving thing actually in terms of just the happiness of my childhood, being able to do all the music I could possibly want and have some space to breathe. And it ended up actually um, unexpected. You know, we did it just to save my schedule <laughs> and give us that flexibility, but it ended up actually really informing the way that I approach learning to this day. Um, the fact that, you know, we weren't following a specific curriculum, um, you know, with anything set in stone. I mean, obviously by the end of high school, you have to know certain things and take certain tests, but you know, if I felt like doing history one month or math another month, I could just go for whatever my interests are, were mm -hmm. in and, and indulge those interests for as long as I felt like. It wasn't like, okay, now that unit's over, you have to move on to the next topic, but no, you feel like doing that for another few weeks, go for it. And so I started applying that to my music studies as mm. well, really digging deep and just letting my curiosity run wild. And it's just been so much fun to be able to explore music to my heart's content. And, you know, there, there really isn't any difference between the old days and now in terms of what I learn, other than the fact that I no longer have to keep a record of it. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. Wow. So I mentioned in the intro, you made your debut with the Chicago Symphony when you were 10 years old. How did that come about? Yeah, so I actually made my debut as soloist with a professional orchestra when I was seven. Wow. And then I soloed with a few other orchestras in my single digits. And then there was uh, a youth competition, you know, one of these typical concerto competitions where kids who play various instruments audition and I was selected um, to get to solo with the CSO and that was really amazing because of course they're one of the best orchestras in the world and to get to play with them and hear that sound not from the perspective of an audience member but just around me on stage it was hugely inspiring and you know I already was working really hard on my violin, but it was that much more motivating because I was like, I want to be able to have that experience again and again and again. And I've been super lucky that I actually get to do that. Amazing. Wow. And what concerto did you play at your Chicago Symphony debut, just out of curiosity? Oh, sure. Well, that was actually the Saint-Saëns Introduction and Rondo Capriccioso oh, with wow. the legendary maestro Eric Leinsdorf. Oh my <laughs> gosh. Wow. 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 Quite the memorable experience. Wow. Now you had a very non-traditional uh, educational path as a child, but did you go to a conservatory then when you turned 18 and quote unquote graduated high school or were you already, was everything already just taking off so much you just went straight into performing? Yeah, exactly. I actually um, finished out my high school stuff when I was 16, as it turns out. Um, I accumulated enough credit hours. I was like, oh, guess I'll submit the thing and be done. Um, but I, I certainly would never recommend not going to conservatory. I think it's super important for young people, not just for the education, but the other parts of life, you know, forming friendships, mm -hmm. you know, and deep connections with um, their future colleagues, for example, getting to know different mentors among the faculty, you know, many, many reasons to go to conservatory. It really wasn't an option for me because my family was very, very financially struggling and my father was unemployed during most of my childhood and eventually left the family. And my mom was taking care of my younger sisters. 
And so from the age of 14 onwards, I was um, a significant part of supporting our household in terms of the rent, the utilities, the groceries, and so on. And even if I'd gotten a completely 100% scholarship to college, I wouldn't have been able to attend college and continue working mm. enough um, to um, keep a roof over our heads or over my family's head. Mm. Um, wow. But it turned out um, actually to be just fine because the fact that I was homeschooling, I was able to expedite everything. I uh, was in the Civic Orchestra of Chicago, which is the Chicago Symphony's training ensemble. Um, not a youth orchestra, it's a unique um, I guess the only equivalent is the New World Symphony, but mm. the Civic Orchestra, for those who aren't familiar with them, it's really for college uh, graduate and postgraduate students as um, that final step before your professional career. And I was lucky enough to be in that ensemble from the age of 11 onwards, and it wow. was a transformative experience. Obviously, I my main ambition was to be a soloist, not because it's glamorous, but because I love sharing my individual voice with audiences, and I love the concerto and recital repertoires. But um, orchestra training is so important to just understand music making, understand the way the symphony works, the way composers work. For example, if I'd stayed in my you know, in my room, in my bedroom for hundreds extra hours practicing the Brahms concerto, I would not have matured with it nearly as much as playing all the Brahms symphonies and exploring the Brahms string quartets. It's so important to get that background. And I was mm -hmm. lucky enough to get to do it in civic with guys like Berenboim and Meta and Slatkin and Boulez and Schulte. And oh my gosh, it's just absolutely yeah. incredible. So, you know, I being in Chicago turned out to be the perfect thing. And because I was in civic with all of these um, college and grad students, I got to do a lot of chamber music during all of my high school years. I did all my music history studies. And um, then I ended up uh, winning all my international competition prizes between the ages of 16 and 18, made my recording debut, um, got my first faculty position. And so it was just like, yeah, as you said, I was, wow. I was doing it. <laughs> that was that. But there's always places to continue <laughs> getting better and better at music. And that's why I love it so much wow. that, you know, unlike a, a sport where you, you know, hit age 27 and you start your decline. Or something, <laughs> you know, music, you can hope to always improve and improve and improve. Wow. Almost till the end. That's such a, I, I love to hear that perspective. I think a lot of um, young people can get frustrated when becoming um, musicians or performers or thinking about, about it as a career because then it starts to feel like a job and you have to meet the deadlines and you know uh, uh, quote unquote with all this music learning but to think of it as a a constantly growing and educational experience I think is a really cool outlet and way to think about it because you know you do have the moments of oh gosh I have to learn something new and I have to figure that but it's so cool for to hear your perspective from such a young age just doing it and living in it and being in that world um is a really unique perspective I, I don't know very many people with a similar I don't know if I know anyone with a similar experience to you um but you mentioned that you've won uh, quite a few competitions and 1992 you were the first and first American and youngest to win the Johann Sebastian Bach competition. Um, can yeah, you tell I guess us? I still am. I guess I still are am. You, Somebody, are, somebody's got to bring it back home. There we go. Yes. There we go. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what it's like to do those competitions? What are they actually like? How does it, how do, how do they operate and how does it feel to be a part of one and, and, and then ultimately win it like you did? My family had the extra pressure that, you know, buying 
the airplane tickets and the housing and, you know, being away from home where I wouldn't be gigging for those couple of weeks, you know, I, uh, it would have been problematic um, to come home and not have um, some, some kind of an award because yeah. then, you know, my finances would have been in the red. And so it was like, well, do I take the gamble? And then, of course, you're not going to play well if you're thinking of that pressure. So I had to somehow or another put that all out of my mind. Um, but and actually, that was a large part of the motivation for starting my foundation, which I know we're going to talk about in a minute. But the foundation was originally started for um, program, our young artist programs, um, which have um, an instrument loan um, program and then also financial assistance for all of the things that scholarships don't cover like audition recording sessions, new strings for your instrument, the purchase of sheet music for the next repertoire you've been assigned, um, accompanist fees, mm. um, concert clothes, all of those things that families have to pay for out of pocket. So, you know, it's definitely something that has a huge, I mean, any competition, whether it's the Korea launching, um, you know, international ones on the far end of the spectrum or the little local ones when you're first starting off, um, the main point to do them really is not to think about winning them. If you win them, that's a super bonus, but it's really to get the experience. Um, first of all, you know, to prepare and have a deadline, you know, just makes you that much of a better player because you're working towards a goal and, and really growing in the process. And then to get the feedback from, um, you know, the adjudicators, um, you know, that's also, you know, incredibly valuable to, to get another perspective besides your usual teacher and then to get to hear the other contestants and get inspiration and, and knowledge from, you know, what they're doing, um, you know, so to try to keep a, you know, an attitude of not getting trapped in that competitive vibe, mm -hmm. because, you know, there's room in this world for lots of us and different musicians have different personalities. Some of us are going to appeal to some people in the public and other people are going to prefer somebody else. And that's the way it should be. Um, lots of options and lots of different approaches. Um, and so, you know, who's to say this person is better than this other person? But it's really just, you know, are you being the most effective version of yourself and how can you improve that? And so, yeah, that's what it's all about. And then, of course, you know, if you are hoping to do this for your life, you know, doing those things necessary to help get your career going are, of course, important, but never to go into it with that mindset, always mm. to go into it with the mindset of, um, you know, the growth experience. And so whether or not you win a prize, you've still gotten something very, very important out of it. Mm. Wow. Absolutely. So you alluded to your foundation a little bit. Let's talk about the yeah. foundation. You founded it in 2001. And uh, you talked a little bit about what inspired you to found it, but tell us a little bit about the mission, goals, and accomplishments in the 21 years that the foundation has yeah. been in existence. Wow. Yeah, it's kind of amazing um, to think that I started a not-for-profit when I was so young, um, yeah. but I'm you know, super happy with all we've been able to accomplish thanks to our many generous volunteers and donors, supporters. Um, we've been able to help more than 100 young artists at wow. this point. And it's, um, gosh, I'll give you a good example of the financial assistance program. There was a young lady who lived in upstate New York. Um, her parent was a single mother and she got a full scholarship to the Juilliard pre-college program. But that full scholarship wasn't going to cover the cost of the gas tolls and parking mm -hmm. to get to Manhattan every week. 
And so that's where we came in. And, you know, it's not that much, but it's the difference between not being able to accept that opportunity or being able to do it. And so sometimes that's, you know, the difference. And, you know, when is 100% not enough, right? Because mm -hmm. Juilliard wasn't going to pay for her gas. And I remember those days, you know, trying trying to think, how are we going to buy gas this week and grocery money and get you to your rehearsals and like so it was just such a joy to be able to see, uh, or it's been such a joy to be able to see um, these young artists grow and thrive. Um, and we've got some some stars among them, the young violist Matthew Lippman, who's one of the most renowned um, violists of his generation on the scene today. Um, he, uh, for many, many years, was playing one of our instruments, and we supported him back in his teens when he was doing his first set of competitions um, you know, breaking through onto the scene. So it's really exciting to feel like we've been a part of that. Um, but of course, as you mentioned earlier, one of our biggest projects has been our Music by Black Composers project. Well, what happened is when I was in the, the Civic Orchestra of Chicago, our principal conductor was Michael Morgan, who has sadly passed away um, earlier this year, but, um, or maybe it was, was it last year? Goodness, time sort of gets all smooshed together in the pandemic months. But um, Michael Morgan uh, was a dear friend and mentor, and he was assistant conductor at Chicago Symphony at the time he was principal at Civic. Um, he, of course, was African-American and um, would introduce some of the symphonic works of Black composers to the mix with us at Civic. And in 92, when I was 17 years old, he did a special concert where it was a completely music of Black composers, mostly um, dead and alive from the 20th century. Um, but there was one recently rediscovered work by an 18th century French composer, a violin concerto that I got to give the, the modern day world premiere. Um, and it was life-changing in a number of respects. It was the first time I'd ever composed a cadenza. Up till then, I thought, well, why should I write a cadenza when we've got, you know, to Mozart or Brahms or Beethoven, when we've got these great ones by guys like you know, Joachim and Chrysler, but at, but nobody had left a, a written cadenza for this little French concerto. So I had no choice but to write my own. And that really opened my eyes that, you know, it's not about whose cadenza is somehow better, but that only your cadenza can be the most personal to yourself. Mm -hmm. And then I realized, wait a sec, I should write cadenzas to all the, the famous concertos. And, and I did. <laughs> but wow. it was also uh, my first time really playing a work by a Black composer, and I just absolutely loved it. And it was fascinating to me that there was something that was this high quality that had not been part of the standard repertoire for so many centuries in this case. Um, and it made me really curious to see if there were any more hidden treasures and you know overlooked gems. And so um, there was a, a um, library archive in existence for many decades here in Chicago called the Center for Black Music Research. Mm -hmm. And there and in um, New York at the Schomburg Collection and other places, I started looking for works by Black composers and found so many amazing ones. And so I ended up making my 97 album, which is now celebrating its 25th anniversary re-release, um, Violin Concertos by Black Composers of the 18th and 19th Centuries. I've now added the rediscovered Florence Price second violin concerto. But... Yeah, so I, but I honestly, I guess I was just naive at that young age. I, I really didn't think of issues of representation or diversity, social justice, inclusion, you know, any of those things. Honestly, I just loved the music and was excited, you know, as a fan of the violin 
to have some, you know, really awesome violin repertoire that I could um, introduce people to. I mean, how often does one get that chance? So I made that album and then I was, you know, really surprised by the just outpouring of interest in it. Um, I started getting inquiries from students and parents and teachers and colleagues, you know, where can we find more of this repertoire? And I realized that most of it was long out of print. Of course, IMSLP, the, you know, the internet with its free, um, you know, public domain sheet music resources didn't exist in those days. Um, and even now, a lot of the music still isn't even on there yet. Um, and some pieces had never been published because of historic discrimination and lack of opportunity. They were in manuscript only. And even if even the ones that had been printed didn't necessarily exist in appropriate editions for children with simplifications and ready-made fingerings and bowings. So I realized, you know, there's a lot of work to be done. And then also the history, you know, I'm such a geek. I read <laughs> academic journals for fun. And so I, I knew about things like the all-black orchestras of the 19th century, which are kind of the equivalent of the Negro baseball leagues, or the fact that Frederick Douglass and Coretta Scott King were both serious violinists. Um, but, you know, the average kids in the average town somewhere in the U.S. had no access to this music, had no idea of this history, and there was a misconception that this is somebody else's music. And I started being invited to serve on diversity panels and getting to know, um, you know, some of the wonderful work that's being done by so many organizations around the country to provide classical music lessons to um, youngsters from underrepresented populations, but but also some of the challenges that came with that. And um, so that was just about the time that Sphinx was forming and um, Aaron Forkin, of course, joined my advisory board. And I was honored to start serving on the Sphinx board where I, I'm still on. Um, and yeah, so right at the beginning of, of really get, getting things going in a big way. And so I, my, I realized, wait a sec, you know, I'm not the expert in this field, but I'm, you know, more just publicly visible than the academic academicians who are doing so much great work behind the scenes in this um, black music research realm. And so um, I just realized, okay, I've got a not-for-profit up and running and this project needs to be done and I think I'll take it on. So um, the first thing I did, of course, was form my advisory board and I've been so blessed that um, numerous heavy hitters, conductors, composers, researchers, pedagogues, performers, you know, have agreed to serve and guide our work for all these years. Um, so it's definitely been a team effort. Um, we've had many generous volunteers helping sort through the music. At this point, we've gathered more than 900 pieces by more than 450 composers from around the world from the 18th century to the present. And it's just a real treasure trove. And um, now our musicbyblackcomposers.org website has numerous free resources, um, including a children's book page, discography, podcast page, um, bibliography. Um, we've got resources for school presentations, sheet music directories for performers. Um, compose well, we've got a directory of more than 150 historic composers, more than 300 living composers, complete with contact information for, for most of them, um, and a sortable um, directory where you can see, you know, sort by gender or by geographic region, um, by birth year and so on. Um, so there's lots and lots of stuff that you can utilize in the own expansion of your repertoire. And then we've also published pedagogical volumes, our timeline poster, 
um, which shows the breadth and depth of um, you know, this activity through, through the generations. And then also our coloring book, which I'm particularly proud of. This was all inspired by parenthood, <laughs> you know, going to the sheet music shop and we get a coloring book for my daughter and they're going, uh, guess who's missing from this coloring book? And then realize, hey, hey let's, let's make our own. Um, and so it's a curated list of 40, uh, or curated collection of 40 Black composers. And it's even if you don't have any inclination to color, it's kind of a great jumping off point to get to know 40 of the most important um, and read their biographies and start to explore their music. That. Yeah, I, I want to say there's so much here. This I is know. all amazing, really. <laughs> well, when I so we do a um, we do a, a concert series called Symphony Uncorked, where musicians go play at a local vineyard, and it's casual, and they talk about their lives and how they got started, and people get to ask things like, "Oh, I didn't know the harp had pedals. How does that work?" Um, and one wait of our sec, wait a sec, yeah, Ohio Ohio vineyard. Yes, Ohio that vineyards. Oh no, <laughs> I know several, um, but yeah, so it's a local vineyard, and they were so supportive of us during the pandemic and um at one of them oh gosh six months ago um one of our violinists and her husband who plays um uh, french horn they were playing duets out of your book out of the oh out of the violin book um and she showed it to me and we talked about you for a while we talked about the pro project um and i also got to talk a little bit more about it um when i was at the league of american orchestras conference talking with people like louise toppin at the university of michigan who has um, a lot of cool collections of of music by black composers and just awareness and because I think the hardest part for a lot of people is finding the information so having these awesome resources with these tools these wealths of information where we can now go find names and uh, pieces and contact information because there's a lot of living ones and I think it's just so wonderful that all of this um, exists and it's so I'm just so grateful to you for having something like this for organizations like the Canton Symphony to be able to expand our own repertoire and think differently about programming and uh, what we're doing here at the symphony. And I'm so excited about the coloring book. We should just get coloring books for kids at concerts. We should just get the coloring Absolutely. book. Oh my goodness. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So actually, and what, what you're bringing up about, you know, expanding repertoire, finally, there's been a sea change in yeah. the industry. It's, it's kind of fascinating. Um, those concertos that I recorded back in 97, one of them is by an amazing virtuoso violinist who was Afro-Cuban um, from the Romantic period, uh, classmate and colleague of guys like Vietong and Vinyelski and Sarasate and wrote this just gorgeous, you know, fiery violin concerto um, that I absolutely love. Every bit as good as a Vinyelski concerto, but orchestras for more than two decades have been um, unwilling to program it because, you know, it's such a risk. The audience has never heard of the guy. Um, even in a return engagement where they already know me, nobody wanted to, to take that chance. And now it's been a total 180. Mm -hmm. I actually have orchestras inviting me to play it. <laughs> and um, that, it, it's funny because, you know, for many years I said, I'll know that the world has finally changed if I ever finally get to start performing that Jose White concerto. And and now I am. And so what's been really um, encouraging is, you know, people, of course, are doing this for, for all the right reasons that, you know, we need to represent all of our citizens when we go to the concert hall and, and the, you know, the, the classical music art 
and is less rich if we don't have all of our voices as part of the conversation. Uh, but it's not just about checking off boxes. I'm not saying that 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 you know that's not important to say, okay, here's a woman composer, here's this, here's that. But actually, it's it just comes back to being about great music. Mm -hmm. We're all missing out if we're excluding some really great music. And honestly, I think this would have been part of our normal repertoire all along had it had the opportunity to, to be considered, so to speak. Um, and so, you know, now that audiences are realizing, hey, you know, it's we, we can't trust that the pieces we already know and love are definitely the very best of whatever has existed. But, you know, there's all this other stuff we've been denied up to this point. And, um, you know, and to trust the curators among the orchestras, the presenters that, you know, they're going to share with their audiences stuff that their audiences are going to like. And, you know, it's going to become some of their new favorites. And this is just really an exciting development. The one thing I want to caution everybody is that there are starting to emerge um, almost not quite a canon, but you know, there's starting to emerge a few composers that are becoming exceptionally popular, whether you're talking about a historic composer like Florence Price or living composers like Carlos Simon and Jesse Montgomery. Now, needless to say, all of those composers are incredible and deserve every performance or commission they can possibly get. But there are so many more, and we don't want to fall into the trap of copying each other and saying, okay, mm -hmm. I know I need to put some flat composers on my series, and these other guys are playing these composers, so I'll just do those composers also, and now I don't have to do any extra work, and I've crossed that off my to-do list. But, you know, there's been so many centuries where we haven't been properly exploring this repertoire, and, you know, you might know of five composers and add those to your repertoire and think your job is done. What about the other 425? Like we need to actually go the extra step and really keep delving deep and wide. And Definitely. I have two follow-up questions about all this. The first is, so your foundation is putting together this database of all these composers and their pieces, but if you discover a piece that is either unpublished or the edition is out of print or something like that are you organizing the publishing of that and or are you serving as the editor for pieces like that yes and yes um so you know um i didn't ha didn't have to do any pandemic baking or netflix binging um, <laughs> during the lockdown there's plenty of work to do yeah. i will not be bored for at least the next few decades um but yes yeah, so we're we're just starting to kind of um get our feet wet in that area yeah you know, there there are a number of um barriers to adding these works right one is what exists and we're trying to address that through some of our directories and by the way you know, we're not the only people doing mm -mm. great work in this area and you know our goal is to kind of serve as a hub and so you know we're always delighted when we can link mm -hmm. to other people's efforts and different online stuff um what we try to do is for each piece you know give information you know whether it's the um, instrumentation the length of the piece uh, we we want to add more information about skill levels so that mm. um, people can know is this appropriate for intermediate players or advanced players or professionals. Um, we have information about 
where to find the music and links, whether it's to a library, to a publisher, etc. We also have links to recordings if such exists, so you can hear what the piece sounds like and decide whether you want to take it on. Um, so all of that is super important to let you know, you know, what exists, where to find it. Um, for um, one of, for some of our directories, we have information about the state of the sheet music. So it might say copyist's hand or manuscript difficult to read or manuscript, um, you know, easy to read. <laughs> That's always nice. Um, or, you know, um, modern print or, you know, whatever it is, just so you have that information. And we have certainly had some manuscripts um, that we have um, made mo new modern editions of um, the Jose White Concerto by the Afro-Cuban composer is one of them that we've just made a new edition of because back when I recorded it, it was a question of kind of cutting and pasting orchestra parts from the score. And oh my you know, gosh. Now it's all been <laughs> I've done that computer. before. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> you know, when the, the when the arts and crafts um, takes longer than the actual practicing. <laughs> like, Wait a what profession am I in here? Right. <laughs> but yeah, so we're definitely doing that. And that's, you know, kind of the next frontier. Um, there, there was a team in New York for a while that was doing some of these for symphonic works by William Grant Still and Chevalier de Saint-Georges. Uh, and yeah, there's a lot more work that needs to be done. You'd be shocked, even some of the, um, some of the, you know, very famous composers like William Grant Still, some of his music is just in terribly sloppy, hard to read editions with tons of mistakes. Ah. I will say, I, I want to commend uh, A&R Editions in Wisconsin I've worked with them. Yeah, I've worked with them for, uh, I'm, we're doing Coleridge Taylor's Symphonic Variations on an African Air right now with Youth Symphony. And other than the fact that there could be a few more cues in the parts, there are a lot of 56 measures of rest and the trombones don't know what's going on. But other than that, I find them to be delightful people to work with and pretty good additions. Mm -hmm. And they have oh, an I addition have... of the score yeah. of the first and third symphonies of Price, a scholarly edition, oh, which is excellent. I have, yeah, I have nothing but respect for those A&R guys. Um, I've been a fan since I was a student. Um, the one thing about scholarly editions such as them is that sometimes they seem to be published by musicologists for musicologists. Yeah. And so... You know, mm -hmm. considerations such as cues, page turns, page layout. Um, so sometimes they'll publish things where they don't have separate parts. It's all score only. And it's like, you know, come on, guys. Don't you want this music <laughs> to be actually rehearsed right. and heard? Right, right. Um, so, yeah. you know, there's there's problems on that end of the spectrum <laughs> also. But, but definitely, um, I love that they care. Yeah. And that yeah. they really do such a good job at what they do. Now we just have to marry the world exactly. and performance and, and yeah get things good for everyone yeah. so one more question about um everything that you were mentioning before about the foundation and your project is it seems to me that everything you think about not only is involved with this music getting performed, but also that it's accessible to the young performer. Mm. I, it's like, it's just second nature. It, immediately you're thinking, okay, I want this not only to be performed, but be accessible by everyone and not just at the top of the profession. So talk a little bit about that. Like it, it seems so ingrained that this is yeah, well, a big part of who you are. Well, music education has been a great passion of mine you know, since I was very young. And, you know, and just classical music access 
and stuff like that, you know, growing up in a neighborhood where, um, you know, I, I'm as, you know, just as, as white as my classmates from um, the North Shore suburbs, but certainly, you know, not at all the same um, type of upbringing. And so, um, you know, this has just been something really important to me for you know, many, many years. And, um, you know, it's interesting in classical music, you know, sometimes people, when we're talking about diversity and playing works by composers of color, and, you know, it's, it's different than many other genres where there might be issues of cultural appropriation or, you know, versus cultural appreciation or, you know, like how do you balance those things? But in classical, as we all know, you know, everybody plays everybody's music and it's our joy and responsibility to do so. Of course, we have to do our due diligence, make sure we're playing an appropriate style. It's just as important, um, you know, to understand how to make the right tone colors for impressionistic music before you play Debussy as it is to understand what kind of inflections you need for something jazz inspired before you play something by Coleridge Taylor Perkinson. Um, that goes without saying, you know, each, you know, composer or music from different countries and time periods has um, different performance traditions that we have to um, be sure that we understand. But that being said, everybody of every ethnicity plays everybody else's music. You have, you know, a Korean soloist playing Brahms and um, me playing Sibelius, I'm not Finnish, <laughs> you know, et cetera. And so, of course, um, African-American soloists are going to play all the great concertos and all the other soloists are going to play concertos by African-American composers and um, or, or Black composers from anywhere in the world. And that's, you know, that's the great joy. At, you know, I think of it as cultural celebration and mm -hmm. really, um, yeah, lifting each other up and get, and I don't, I don't know, you know, that's sort of a cliche that that's saying about, you know, music is a universal language or something like that, because that's almost like a homogenizing or like an erasing of the individuality. Um, I think it's really languages and, you know, getting to know different music um, helps you understand different cultures and different people and does indeed bring us closer together as one humanity for sure. And while there's so much going on um, sort of retroactively, but better late than never um, within our performing arts organizations and professional performers, um, you know, the way to really make that sea change stick is with the next generation coming up. And what's been really heartwarming for me is to see our curricular volumes, um, not only serving African-American youngsters, you know, to help them feel, um, to help them, you know, learn more about um, their history in classical music, which will hopefully inspire and encourage them to be part of classical music's future, but also to see these books being used by programs that, you know, are located in a certain geographic, um, you know, geographic location that, um, you know, maybe they don't have any African-American students. They have um, East Asian or Latino or, you know, white and, you know, who knows what, what their students are, but none of them happen to be Black, and yet they're also learning this repertoire, not because, you know, they should, but because, hey, this is awesome music, or even what's been especially exciting is, oh, wow, this piece is good for this pedagogical um, element. This piece is good mm -hmm. for this pedagogical element. And then the kids are like, hey, I love these melodies. Yeah. And so that's really what it's all about. And if kids are growing up, um, you know, my daughter, of course, you know, close to home, you know, my daughter's been playing this music mm -hmm. since she was itty bitty. She's now just turned 11 and it's been such a normal part of her life to always be playing works by black composers, by women composers, by Asian composers, uh, by Latino composers, by living composers. Um, 
this is just to her what and to so many children coming up these days what you know studying music what playing music what being a musician is and so these kids when they grow up to be the next generation of performers of audience members of arts administrators of donors of board members they're not going to accept you know the status quo that still lingers on um in some places where we have this very narrow view of what classical music is or should be and this very limited repertoire that we get to enjoy these kids aren't going to want to suddenly go from all this smorgasbord of awesome stuff and you know suddenly you know narrow it right mm -hmm. so um you know if you raise them knowing that there's all this good stuff and loving all this good stuff that's just going to carry on in a very organic way um, which is the best way to you know, right the ship and bring us to where we should have been all along. Yeah, that is, <laughs> I just nodding, 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 so much nodding. I think it's, um, it's obvious how much you care about this. And it's so cool to see someone who, um, at least from my lens, I first knew you as a soloist and a performer, and yet you are doing all of these other things. You're on boards, you have a foundation, you're doing all of this work. And I honestly am so surprised how you have time in your day. Um, <laughs> it seems like... Actually, I do have an answer to that. How? <laughs> um, I am very lucky that my condo happens to be soundproofed. Um, there you go. We bought a condo in 2001. It was an existing industrial <laughs> structure of a former sewing machine factory being made into lofts or whatever it was. But we bought one of the new, newly constructed um, upper floors that was also being made with the same kind of solidity just to match, I think, probably for more aesthetics than anything else. But um, it, my real estate agent was like, hey, they're talking about this building that's particularly like thick walled and <laughs> you want to see and you have buy a unit in there and wow. so we actually since it was being built in we built it with double walls and triple floors and then by sheer coincidence um total good luck um the original owner of the unit right above ours was a partying bachelor and so he soundproofed <laughs> <laughs> he soundproofed his floor, which is our ceiling. So consequently, I can practice fortissimo with no mute on at midnight, um, which means I can like do more other stuff during the day. Wow. And I literally would not be able to participate in as many activities as I'm lucky to be able to do if I didn't have a <laughs> completely soundproof condo. Amazing. I hope your daughter's bedroom is also soundproof so she can get a little bit of sleep at night. <laughs> oh, well, she's up practicing at midnight right along. The there you go. <laughs> Perfect. I love it. I it's, it's just such a joy to see the way that you talk about this and how it's, you know, like I have some of these questions that you just are naturally answering because it just is exuding from you how much you enjoy what you do. And I think it's, um, not everyone in the world is like you. It could be like you. And I, but I do wish that more people in the classical music world had the output, the outlook that you had in your last sentence was that, that young people who grow up with this education and get this smorgasbord, as you said, who then grow up to be board members and administrators. And it's not just who grows up to become a performer. It's, it's the whole community growing up to then demand this type of music and to demand that it get played and to support it openly and to be a part of it, even if they're not performers. Um, 
And I was just so grateful for you to have said that because it is so important um, that we think about more than just who's going to become our next musicians, although that is also very important of who's going to be on the stage and who are we going to have um, playing this music. But I just, I wanted, that was such a, a beautiful thing that you said. Um, and uh, it just made me <laughs> really, really grateful to think about. Well, I mean, let's be honest, you know, it's a not-for-profit, um, you know, it's ticket sales, it's donations. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's, you know, the, that's the customer and, yeah. you know, the musicians on stage might want to play certain things, but if that's not what the audiences mm -hmm. want to buy tickets to hear or be inspired to donate because they're getting what they want, you know, those are the guys that actually drive programming, right. um, probably to the greatest extent. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so actually our young people who grow up not to be performers are going to maybe even be more important in driving exactly. the future of classical music. Exactly. And that, yeah, and that's, oh gosh, that's, I think that's so important with thinking about programming and thinking about what we're going to play. It's as a not-for-profit, you're also thinking, okay, well, how are we going to sell tickets and how are we going to make money and make sure that we can support our musicians? And uh, yeah, it's, it's a long, it's a long-term thing of developing our communities and um, developing the people in the audience and what, what is expected of us to play. And I just wanted to um, just thank you again for that perspective of developing our audiences and those who are going to be in more places beyond just who our performers are going to be, but also our donors and audience members and who's deciding programming and all this good stuff. And um, I just really thank you for doing that hard work because there's not a lot of people who are, well, there are a lot of people who are, but it, it's really cool to see um, you as a performer as well like living it out by also then performing all this work and it's just it's just really cool and i really appreciate it oh, thank you so we're going to finish off today by asking the question that we ask of every single guest on the podcast at the very end of the episode and you have given us so much already to think about in this regard but we're going to ask it anyway how do we orchestrate change oh Wow. Okay. Um, <laughs> you know, I think just looking and listening and, um, I mean, it's great these days that there are so many, um, ways that we can connect to each other so we can, um, find out what best practices are, what's been successful for another community and maybe try those things out. I think being adventurous, and creative and listening to the ideas of you know young people coming up and um you know it's i always think what is what is classical music going to become and i'm i feel like i'm not even the person to answer that it's you know people like my daughter who are going to answer that question but um gosh how do we orchestrate change um i think by really um always knowing what it is that you believe in um, and I'm not just talking about, you know, the importance of classical music, but why do you believe, you know, what's your motivation? Um, for me, that motivation is believing that um, music uplifts us and enriches us and that it's not mere entertainment, but that it has, you know, a profound effect upon the human spirit and wanting to do my part to bring music to as many people as possible to, um, to share the art form. Um, to bring people together with music, whatever those things are for you um, as administrators, as performers, um, as board members, you know, whatever uh, mo 
motivates you to always keep that motivation front and center because we can actually be distracted by implementation and the implementation becomes um, the goal. Mm. And in fact, that's not the goal. That's the means to the end, which is the bigger goal. And always we're keeping that bigger goal in mind. Um, as a soloist, I, you know, I remind myself of that, you know, because one could get caught up in career considerations like, oh, I need to make sure that I, um, you know, do a bunch of interviews or something like that. And then it's like, wait a sec, I'm doing those interviews because they lead towards the things that matter to me, um, which are, you know, the, which is the bigger picture um, or getting caught up in, um, you know, trying to, to get different opportunities. And, you know, one can, can see, having been on the board of not-for-profits, you know, sometimes you think, well, we could secure more donations if we do X. And then going back to the mission statement and saying, wait a sec, but doing X isn't actually our, our um, priority. Mm -hmm. And so, wait a sec, how can we actually do those things that do align with our priorities and then do them so well that we inspire donors rather than looking at it backwards? And that can be a real trap you can fall into, right? So, yeah, so what does change even mean? I think change means evolution. Um, it means, you know, just um, developing, being open and, um, it doesn't mean doing away with what's good or, you know, stopping things. It means adding, mm -hmm. you know, and that's why we have the hashtag expand the canon. Mm -hmm. uh, some could argue that, you know, the canon is a bad concept to start with, but you know, <laughs> the point is it's not a replacement, right? It's not um, replace the canon, stop playing Beethoven, but it's, hey, let's add this other stuff. And so um, change means, um, yeah, just continuing to improve. And that's such uh, that's that's such the daily lives of musicians, the idea of continuing to improve. We don't just maintain the skill that we have, but we're always striving to be ever better. And so with our whole music profession, we have that same attitude that we're practicing and we're always looking for that next horizon. And if we continue to do that, um, change will be inevitable, good change. Wow, I, I'm happy. I'm uh, This is the... Great. This was a great conversation. I feel really, um, I feel like I've learned a whole lot <laughs> after this conversation. So I just thank you so much for being with us today. I really, really appreciate it. And Rachel. Thanks again for having me. It's been super fun. Yeah. I we, guess I'm going to get to meet you in person. Yes, yes. We're so excited. I was yes. just about to say, we're so excited. In just less than three weeks, yeah. we are going to see you here in person. We're Ooh. so thrilled you're coming to Canton. <laughs> well, hopefully it won't be too cold. And um, I guess I won't probably be visiting any of your vineyards this time of year, but. Um. Violinist Rachel Barton Pine. Orchestrating Change is a production of the Canton Symphony Orchestra. Our theme music was composed by Eric Gould and performed by Derek Snyder and Tim Adams. Our audio engineer and mixer is Nathan Maslick with video and audio editing by Shoreline Media. Thank you for listening, and see you next time.